broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome to another edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. Al's still battling this cold. Please continue to keep him in prayer. He's doing okay. His uh, energy's decent. It's just his voice is not fit for doing two hours of radio right now. So we are going to look back at some other conversations instead. And before we do go to there, I want to be sure we uh, offer some congratulations to Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha, celebrating 25 years with us. 15 stations serving all of Nebraska, plus one in Boyd, Wisconsin. Big congrats going out to Jim Carroll and everybody else at Spirit Catholic Radio from your friends at Ave Maria Radio and EWTN. Uh, Lots to talk about over the next two hours. Starting off with some uh, commentary from Al, our battle is against the powers. Uh, The spirit of our age is secular and materialistic. If you believe that knowledge can be obtained by personal spiritual revolution, you'll see us as an oddball. Ethical questions are led to each person's personal autonomy, and St. Paul writes that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers that are hostile to the gospel. Al discusses more about this. This is the commentary he did last year, after there was a story about the Vatican Observatory. And when the New York Times tweeted the story out, the caption in the tweet said something like, Centuries after burning people at the stake, the Catholic Church is now open to astronomy, which is ridiculous for a few reasons. One of them being that it's not like this uh, Vatican Observatory was just built last week. It's been around for a long time. And so Al's got more to say about that in just a few minutes. And then uh, later on, we're going to take another look at history with Stephanie Mann. It was on January 15th of 1535 that Henry VIII was proclaimed supreme head of the Church of England uh, due to the act of succession changing things forever in the once vibrantly Catholic country of England. So what was life like for the coming years in that country for English Catholics? Uh, Stephanie Mann joining us with more. She is the author of Supremacy and Survival, How Catholics Endure the English Reformation, and resides in Wichita, Kansas. You can learn more about her at supremacyandsurvival.blogspot.com. Finally, in the next hour, we look back on an interview that we like to share with you about once a year if we can, and that's Exploring the Virtue of Hope. Uh, hope is one of God's greatest gifts to us, and we'll look at the power of hope with Father Philip Bochensky, author of The Virtue of Pope, How Confidence in God Can Lead You to Heaven. All that's coming up in the next two hours after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, January 11th. It's the Feast of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The Biden administration says allegations that Israel has committed genocide in Gaza are unfounded. Those who are violently attacking Israel, who continue to openly call for Israel's annihilation and the mass uh, murder of Jews. State Department spokesman Vidat Patel said such allegations should be made with the greatest of care. This comes as South Africa is presenting its case to the International Court of Justice, accusing Israel of genocide in its war against Hamas. Israel will address the court Friday. Former President Trump continues to call his New York civil fraud trial a witch hunt. The judge in the case allowed Trump to speak for five minutes during closing arguments today, despite originally indicating he would not be allowed to make a statement. Trump, his adult sons, and business associates are accused of inflating the value of real estate in order to get more favorable loans. 
St. Peter's Basilica will undergo a major restoration. The Vatican announced today that the Baldacchino over the main altar, which was designed more than 400 years ago, will be renovated. The large canopy marks the burial place of St. Peter. The project is funded by the Knights of Columbus and will take about a year, finishing in time for next year's Jubilee. And Congress is facing another looming government shutdown deadline. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today said he's aiming to pass a short-term funding extension next week. Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson recently agreed on top-line spending numbers, which a group of House conservatives have spoken out against due to lack of cuts. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You've heard the phrase, the spirit of the age. In German, they say Zeitgeist. Uh, Exactly what constitutes the spirit of the age is sometimes difficult to describe because we're surrounded by it. We're like fish in water. Uh, But if you talk to Christians engaged in cross-cultural communications who are engaged in missionary work, they will tell you that the Western world... That is the world that you and I are swimming in. Definitely has a spirit. Definitely has a set of assumptions. And if you cross these assumptions, it'll cost you acceptance and prestige in Western society. So the West, for instance, does define itself as a secular materialistic age. If you think that reality is fundamentally religious, you're on the outside of the key groups that have a controlling and creative influence in Western society. This doesn't mean that Christians can't do good work in such an environment. We see them all the time. There are Christians working on university faculties. They participate in community and professional theater. They're involved in business, uh, many efforts to reduce homelessness or poverty. But in each case, their Christian faith might motivate them personally, but it doesn't serve to motivate the group as a whole. So that's the first thing. The spirit of the age, our age, is secular and materialistic. Secondly, the West privileges the scientific method. It's the privileged path to knowledge. It's the most reliable path to knowledge. So if you believe that knowledge can be obtained through, say, divine revelation, or personal religious experience, or even through logical deduction, you're considered a bit sketchy, a bit touched. So, first of all, it's secular. Secondly, it's scientific. And thirdly, the West, when it looks at ethics, avoids settling on the common good. Uh, It cannot seem to reach agreement on the common good. So, we leave it to the individual. Ethical questions have to do with personal autonomy. It's my right. I'll do what I want. That often ends the discussion when a conflict comes up. And look at our stories and our legends. They're about struggling heroes who finally free themselves from all the givens. uh, Given of society, the given of their bodies, the given of external authorities like the church, the givenness of tradition. The essence of what it means to be human in these stories is to be free of all encumbering uh, relationships. That, these are three things that make up the West's understanding of reality. It's a secular society, materialistic. It's knowledge, it's privileged knowledge is through scientific method. And its ethical conflicts 
uh, are often settled by whose right is it? It's my right. In fact, you may even have to invent rights, as we saw the Supreme Court do most famously in Roe v. Wade, because it couldn't settle upon how to serve the common good. So, are we that much different than the first century? Uh, Well, we are different in many ways. First of all, we're 2,000 years of Christianity that's been in our bloodstream, so we can't entirely get free of it. But now we're entering an era in which the Christian faith no longer exercises uh, any controlling or creative influence over the culture as a whole. Uh, Christendom is gone. The same so that puts us in a similar position to where the Christians were in the first century. And in the first century, St. Paul speaks of the principalities and powers that represent hostile and demonic powers that are opposed to the preaching of the gospel. Okay? Scholars debate what precisely these powers are, but at the very least, they seem to represent powers in heaven and earth that are committed to interfering with our understanding of God's reality. Uh, Our assumptions here, the universe is secular, science is the only reliable path to knowledge, and the final word is it's my right, does function in our own day like controlling principalities and powers. They are assumptions which control the conversation. They control the behavior. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, St. Paul identifies the principalities and powers as, as the major source of opposition to the church. So he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil. So the powers in the book of Ephesians seem to be certainly hostile to the gospel and quite possibly rooted in demons, demonic. In Colossians 2, he attests to the hostility of the powers uh, that be towards Christ and the church. He says all believers in Christ have been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been placed into the kingdom of God's Son. And um, it's... Christ's victory over the powers is a major point of preaching for St. Paul. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 8, for instance, talk about the rulers of this age. These are the ones who crucified Christ Jesus. They neglected to recognize God's wisdom. Uh, And again, scholars disagree. Uh, They have different opinions on the identity of who these rulers were. But a common interpretation is that the passage refers to the socio-political powers beyond human individuals. And these are socio-political powers that are motivated uh, through, well, they have demonic overtones to them. Uh, these rulers might even be demonic. But they certainly include organized opposition to God through existing world leaders. This is a, you know, a fascinating study. Uh, in Colossians, for instance, he has an interesting passage where he talks about the elemental spirits or elemental principles. And, again, there's some ambiguity here among the scholarship, but these elementary principles seem to refer to the hold that Greek philosophical assumptions had worked against the preaching of the gospel. Um, These are assumptions held within the culture that render the gospel implausible. So you have a clash of worldviews. 
you have a clash of cultures here. Principalities and powers, or these elemental elemental principles, are not just false ideas. They're not just a matter of being incorrect on some things. They are super assumptions. They are controlling assumptions about life that most people don't even think about. It's just assumed that Caesar is Lord. You know, uh, you say Christ is Lord, you're a little sketchy here. Uh, Caesar is Lord, everybody knows that. It's just assumed that the gods are many. And if you're claiming God is one, you're not quite in with the culture. From our standpoint today, it's the resurrection of Jesus that calls into question the reigning assumptions of our age. The resurrection is a historical event that can't be investigated by scientific method. It's a supernatural event that calls into questions the God of secularity or the God of materialism. And the resurrection of Christ is also, in some fashion, a corporate event. The church is his body, which he composes as the head in heaven. This is, again, what happens after the resurrection. We're not mere individuals. So St. Paul can write that Christ is the head of all rule and authority, and he's demonstrating his supremacy over them by triumphing over these elemental powers. Um, I mean, it's in one in one case, St. Paul writes about uh, those false teachers at Colossae who are espousing the worship of angels. And what's so absurd about it is that they're espousing the worship of angels when one who is greater than the angels has walked among us and is now raised to heaven. So all this is to say that there are assumptions that get embedded in culture in our world that it's difficult to dislodge them in spite of evidence to the contrary. You know, the, the um, apostles went and preached the resurrection of Jesus right in the presence of a hostile audience that could very easily have uh, destroyed the claim. They could have produced the body, and Christianity would have died, uh, not in the cradle, but in the womb, for heaven's sake. So, in our culture, one of these reigning assumptions that seems impervious to all evidence is the idea that science and religion are hostile to one another. This comes up because the New York Times Science Times piece on the Vatican Observatory has this man-bites-dog quality to it. It's like, well, wonders never cease. The Catholic Church operates an observatory. Are they finally getting with science? Here's a quote from the Twitter notice. Centuries after the Holy See muzzled and burned Roman Catholic stargazers for questioning the centrality of the Earth and the cosmos, Jesuit astronomers from the Vatican's in-house observatory are increasingly writing their names in the heavens. Now, I can say, the idea that the Church burned anybody for questioning the centrality of the Earth is rubbish. It's actually worse, but... Bovine feces doesn't quite get it, and good taste forbids from using the perfectly appropriate BS word. It is nonsense. This is such an elementary error from the standpoint of history and science that you wonder what kind of history of science courses these science reporters took. The old warfare imagery is just wrong. A professor of history of science and technology at Johns Hopkins University, Lawrence Principe, said this in a lecture that I heard. Given the widespread public acceptance of the warfare model, it comes as a surprise to many people to learn that no historians will support it. 
Let me be clear. The idea that scientific and religious camps have historically been separate and antagonistic is rejected by all modern historians of science. End quote. The relationship was complex, but conflict was the exception, not the rule. You know, apparently this reporter or his headline editor didn't realize that the Vatican Observatory is one of the oldest active astronomical observatories in the world, with its roots going back to 1582. The church was at the forefront of sponsoring what today we call astronomy. J.L. Heilbron, who's the professor emeritus uh, of science at University of California, Berkeley, has written, The Roman Catholic Church gave more financial and social support to the study of astronomy for over six centuries during the late Middle Ages into the Enlightenment than any other and probably all other institutions. You know, we have to accept that we are living in a world that breeds itself on assumptions that are that render the gospel implausible. The no, this assumption of that you, the universe is basically materialistic and secular, that scientific method is the only reliable way to get at truth, and the idea that personal autonomy is what makes up the most important thing about an individual. All those things are false. And the resurrection of Jesus is the fact of history and super history that renders those assumptions false. Get to know Christ in his resurrection. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. The truth is this. None of us will ever live long enough to learn from our own mistakes. We must learn from each other. That includes heeding the advice from others. I ask questions. It's not only because I'm a trained journalist and a certified life and leadership coach. It's because I'm a curious person. I want to know things. I also realize there's so much I don't know. Pride not only prevents people from learning, it's one of the seven deadly sins. It takes humility to admit you don't know the answer or that you made a mistake. There's nothing shameful about humbling yourself in the Lord, asking for forgiveness, seeking counsel, and getting advice. Don't perish in pride. Find your potential by pursuing the knowledge of others. As Christians, we are meant to be in community. I pray that God brings the people in my life to lead me in the direction He wants me to go because I realized a long time ago I don't always know where to turn. This has been a Christ Center communication message. I'm Vanessa Dunhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. What do we mean by the way of prayer? 
The Catholic Catechism tells us that in the living tradition of prayer, each church proposes to the members a language for prayer within the context of its historical, cultural, and social background. The magisterium of the church has the task of discerning if these ways of praying are faithful to the traditions of the apostolic faith. There is, the Catechism insists, no other way of Christian prayer than Christ. Why? Because whether our prayer is communal or vocal, it only has access to the Father through the name of Jesus, which means God saves. It is through his sacred humanity that the Holy Spirit teaches us to pray to our Father. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. You're listening to Ave Maria Radio. Ave Maria Radio. Light of the East. Weekends on Ave Maria Radio. I'm Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, as though being born and laid in a manger in Bethlehem was not humbling enough, our Lord chose to lower himself in the lowest spot on the earth's surface, the River Jordan. There he would be baptized for our sake and God as Trinity would be revealed. Now on Ave Maria Radio's newest FM stations, 105.5 FM in Southfield and 107.9 FM in Ann Arbor. On the next Epiphany. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hi, Vanessa Denhagarmo here. Speaking of hunger, we welcome Father Leo Padalinga, priest and award-winning chef, inviting us to his upcoming talk at St. John's Resort. Then we speak with Joe Connors, president of Southern Downriver Right to Life, about two upcoming events. Epiphany, weekdays at noon on Ave Maria Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. On January 15th of 1535, King Henry VIII proclaimed himself supreme head of the Church of England, and that changed things forever in that once Catholic country. Uh, Here you have uh, the head of the state also declaring himself head of the church, and that was uh, something that uh, we had not seen before in Christian history. With me right now is Stephanie Mann. She is author of Supremacy and Survival, How Catholics Endured the English Reformation. It's available from uh, Scepter Publishers. And uh, Stephanie blogs at supremacyandsurvival.blogspot.com. So you can check out uh, other work of hers. And uh, great to have you back here, Stephanie. Thanks. Thank you, Al. It's good to talk to you again. This, uh, again, this the English... Um, um, Reformation uh, is really quite different than what we see in, uh, in on the continent. Uh, it has a different political dimension to it, and uh, yes. let's talk a little bit about how that happens. Because Henry VIII was even uh, called Defender of the Faith uh, while he was still a Catholic. How did he earn that title? He wrote a book in 1521 called The Defense of the Seven Sacraments. I mean, that's the English title. He wrote it in Latin. Mm-hmm. And it was, in fact, in a, a defense of the Catholic faith and the, in the se- seven sacraments as established by Jesus Christ, as outward signs to give us grace, against what Martin Luther was teaching. Yeah. And one of the, like you say, the, the amazing things that this turnaround and this horrible change was that 
1521, he's defending the, the seven sacraments. In 1537, he has a parliament, 1536 and 1537, he has a parliament that says, like Luther says, there's only three sacraments, yeah, baptism, right. Eucharist, and penance. So he, he, goes, from, he goes from defending uh, papal supremacy, or at least papal primacy, in, in that book against Luther, to saying that he is now the head of the Church of England. So it is a remarkable and and horrible change that occurred. Do we know if he actually wrote that book? Uh... There, there's a debate. Uh, he he certainly wanted to to uh, author something that would get him that title. He okay. wanted a title for, to, to have a papal title. There's suggestion that that uh, Thomas More may have assisted him, but it is he presented it as his work. Yeah. Okay. And dedicated it to Pope Leo X uh, in, in, uh, in not only seeking that title, but also dedicating himself to, to the defense of the true Catholic faith and of the papal primacy. Well, let's talk about what happens between 1521 then and 1535 uh, to change his uh, commitments. Uh, right. He he sees he is uh, he wants to be known as a defender of the faith, the Catholic faith. Uh, when does he begin to have difficulty, uh, either politically or intellectually, with the Catholic Church? It, it begins when, in the early 1530s, he starts uh, to press Rome, the Pope, the, the current Pope, Julius II, to give him grant him an annulment, the declaration of nullity of, the, of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of, of Isabella and Ferdinand of Spain. Mm -hmm. okay. So he wanted that uh, annulment so that he could remarry and hopefully have a legitimate male heir. Catherine had had several pregnancies, but the only daughter who was surviving, or the only child who, who had survived was indeed a daughter, Mary. And so Henry started, uh, he, and it's amazing how long this takes for him to go through this process. He, you know, even, even his declaration of himself as the supreme head and governor of the church uh, in England was uh, two months after Parliament had declared it. So, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't rush into these things yeah, yeah. that much. But he certainly began to press uh, the universities and others to look at, look at the Bible passages and say whether he should have married his brother's widow, and he had determined that he shouldn't have, and that their, therefore their marriage was in a way cursed by God, and he, he couldn't have this it, le, le bit, a legitimate child. So he, he, in his own, at that time, in his self-understanding, it's, I made, my marriage to Catherine was wrong in the first place, is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. I should not have married her, it was wrong. Uh, and the, the Pope was wrong to give me a dispensation. Right. And uh, uh, so he was really kind of going at papal authority almost as soon as he argued this, because I, I think uh, I think Henry always wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be in good conscience yeah. okay. in some ways with himself. So he's saying, I didn't do this. My dad made me wanted me to marry her, so we keep the dowry, and the church let me marry her, and they shouldn't have. And so I want to be cleared of this, and I want to be able to marry in good faith and in, in good conscience and according to the church's laws, and have that child, that boy that I want. And so he go, goes on this long process of, of uh, pressing then 
uh, Pope Clement the Seventh, uh, who was also invo- had uh, was entangled with uh, uh, Charles the Fifth, who was Catherine of Aragon's nephew, and so everything was very political and very confused. And finally, he comes to the point in the in 1532 that he goes to the convocation of bishops and say, says, you should know, have no longer any loyalty to Rome. Your loyalty is to me wow. because I need this annulment. It needs to be done. The, in 1532, the bishops submit, pay a huge fine, and Thomas More resigns as Chancellor of England and goes into private life. And then uh, in 1534, actually in November, Henry is declared the uh, by an act of parliament to be the supreme head and governor of the church in England with the submission of the clergy ratified by parliament. And so, I guess, the celebrating Advent and, and Christmas, he doesn't actually proclaim himself with this title until January 15, yeah. okay. uh, 1535. And then, then the whole confusion, the whole confusion of the way that he exercises that headship in the Church of England begins. And it is confusing. I mean, for an ordinary Catholic, an ordinary Catholic, it must have been stunning, but for people who were in positions of authority, of course, it, you know, it affected the bishops and the yeah. the abbots of the monasteries immediately, because they were cut off from Rome. It, it was kind of the beginning of the end of canon law in England. Uh, they had no appeals to Rome. There were some Italian bishops uh, in in England, of course, they had to leave because they couldn't submit to right. Henry VIII. They still had their loyalty to Rome, and then uh, Henry allowed, and sometimes even you know kind of provoked a great deal of a power struggle between I think you'd call them Lutherans. I don't I don't think we'd say Protestants. They were following Lutheran reforms, okay, and Catholics, and those were, these were Catholics without the Pope. Kind of Catholic, yes, because okay. the the Catholics who wanted the Pope, of course, by you know, well, it, by the summer of 1535, would uh, be executed <laughs> because oh. they, you know, th- that's when we get the process of going after the uh, of More, Thomas More, and John Fisher, who had been so strongly op- opposed to Henry VIII uh, doing this declaring himself the supreme head and governor of the church. So, But it's a very confusing period. Did, did, um, were there any particular uh, bishops or theologians of that era that argued on Henry's behalf, uh, trying to claim that the Pope had gotten it wrong when he had granted uh, Henry that annulment? Did he have a... Well, there, a go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, of course, Thomas Cranmer... What became his Archbishop of Canterbury and basically forswore himself to do so. He swore loyalty to the Pope and kind of crossed his fingers because he never really intended to. And he provided an argument, but there were also some on the Catholics, the Catholics without the Pope's side, like Stephen Gardner, okay. uh, who was Bishop of Winchester and a, a quite a uh, uh, diplomat. Uh, he was arguing that the Pope, uh, not not so much that the Pope had made an error, but that the that the because of the uh, to justify justify by the stability of the realm, that the king should be able to make these decisions and be the head of the church and have that power within his own realm. So yes, and so there were those arguments on both sides, uh, both that Lutheran side and the Catholics without the Pope side wow. supporting Henry in this goal. 
And you then you kind of look, as you said earlier, you look back at the uh, the people themselves. Uh, it, you know, all of a sudden, uh, their experience of what it means to be a Catholic uh, yeah. technically changes. But I, I imagine life on the ground that doesn't change too much if the bishops haven't changed, right? I mean, right. So when I guess what I'm saying, did the people? Uh, do the people ever come around and happily uh, submit to Henry's reforms, or are they just kind of going with the flow? I think they. I think mostly it's going with the flow, and I mean, you know, that A.M. and Duffy's great work on the yeah. stripping of the altars when he describes, you know, the uh, people would write wills saying, "And if the laws allow, I would like masses said for my soul. I would like." <laughs> Someone to pray for me every day for yeah. so, so long and so and so they w- would do that. But it, Al, it, it must have been so confusing. And in 1536 and 1537, everything kind of went in a Lutheran direction. Yeah. And then in yeah. 1538, it goes back into a Catholic direction. In 1540, Cromwell falls, but then uh, Henry kind of goes back into a, a, a Lutheran direction. I mean, they they went back and forth. And the one, the kind of the, the two things that that Henry kind of held on to, what in the midst of all this was really the um, real presence okay. that that the the Eucharist was the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. He went after anyone as they were called sacramentalists who declared it was just some symbol or sign. Yeah. He, you know, he even officiated or was present at a trial of one of those heretics. And the other thing that he held on to was uh, the fact that although he didn't want to use the word purgatory, he still wanted to be prayed for when he died. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he still wanted to have some protection. And of course that would all be abrogated by the uh, succession of that son he'd sought so hard and who was really now kind of even tending even further to Calvinist type views by the time uh, Edward VI comes to the throne as a minor. Wow. My guest is Stephanie Mann. We're looking at, uh, well, today's the anniversary, or January 15th, the anniversary of King Henry VIII proclaiming himself supreme head of the Church of England. Uh, we're looking at the event itself and also the consequences uh, and how Catholics ended up being able to endure the English Reformation. There's a lot more to talk about here. It's an amazing story. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. 
org. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Good family discussions don't just happen, they take time. Family talk rituals help families be intentional about making real conversations happen. You need to be intentional if you want to get past exchanges like, What'd you do in school today? Nothing. Believe it or not, when the relationship between parents and kids is healthy, kids naturally want to open up to mom and dad. Kids want to know that their parents care enough to take time to listen and to understand how they're feeling and what they're going through. When parents make time to listen first, kids are more likely to willingly receive what mom and dad have to say. That's why family talk rituals are an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio, weekdays on Ave Maria Radio. People have this false notion that after the Supreme Court came out with, of course, Roe v. Wade, and gave us abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy. All of a sudden, all of these regulations were put into place. When all of these independent abortion facilities popped up all over the country, when Planned Parenthood started opening its doors and doing abortions legally after 1973, that it was always so safe and wonderful. And they believe this because they don't see these stories about the botched abortions, the women who have lost their lives, the women who have been violated because their information has been tossed out in the street with the garbage and the medical waste, not to mention the fact that the regulations that are on the books are not even enforced, and rarely are these facilities inspected, and yet people think that they're so safe. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio, weekday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio and AveMariaRadio.net. The men of the Sacred Hearts want to send you a 8x10 image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and Immaculate Heart of Mary, along with a self-guided consecration to the Sacred Heart of Jesus ceremony book. Request this mailed kit by going to our new secure website, firstjesus.org, and scroll down to the self-led home consecration. Click on to learn more and request the kit. Looking for quality made-from-scratch meals without the stress? At Colasanti's Market in Highland, choose from 12 homemade soups made fresh daily, including our popular broccoli cheddar and lobster bisque. Catering options include lasagna, beef or chicken mastacholi, garlic mashed potatoes, and more. Visit colasantis.com. That's C-O-L-A-S-A-N-T-I-S dot com. Or call 248-887-3205. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Stephanie Mann, author of Supremacy and Survival, How Catholics Endured the English Reformation. We're talking about Henry VIII's declaration that he was the supreme head of the church. He was, of course, supreme head of the state and makes himself, well, the parliament declares him so, and then he finally adopts it on January 15th of 1535. This title is Head of the Church. This is the first time that's happened in church history, as far as we know, right? That somebody has declared himself head of the state and head of the church at the same time. Yes. I mean, there there, have been, you know, kind of a quasi-sacramental view of kingship. Right. uh, You know, like the French kings, they're the most Christian king and and those kind of things. And I guess, you know, in the the East, in Constantinople, there was kind of that Caesaro-Papism. 
the yeah. papism, but but certainly in the West, this was extraordinary. And it must have been, I mean, for those who were around Henry and around the court, they had to know that things were going to change because he was a powerful king. He was a king who wanted his way and sought his way in nearly every way he could. And so they, they had to know there were going to be changes. Right. What the common folks saw and knew what this meant would be different because right. what they were... They were loyal to their monarch. They were they were Catholics. They were practicing their faith. The Pope was far. You know, one thing I think always we think of when we one of the things we have to adjust when we think of history is people heard the name of the Pope or they heard the Pope prayed for, but and there were certain uh, you know people, or of course people went to pilgrimage to Rome. But the common people probably didn't. They didn't hear about the Pope the way we hear about right. the Pope. We hear every word the Pope says now, and have for the you know the last century we've heard so much more that the pope is doing and so they didn't hear that and so he was he was more distant his they, their king was there and they wanted him to rule and they yep. wanted him to keep the peace but they started to see things i mean the the things that the that they that henry did with under cromwell and and cranmer's influence did change early on were things that were kind of Part of uh, English culture and kind of English folklore, you know, they they thought they were superstitious or could be used superstitiously. So, the use of of palms and of uh, candles and incense and creeping to the cross on Good Friday and processions and uh, the boy bishops, the old tradition of the chorister being elected bishop on uh, Saint Nicholas Day and and ruling as as bishop for a time. All those kind of things started to go away. Those were kind of the first things. And then going after the monasteries, going after shrines, gathering up all the statues of the Blessed Virgin Mary and burning them in a bonfire in Chelsea, all those kind of things. Then they started to see what this meant. And I think, like Eamon Duffy and others have shown, there was some resistance. I mean, there were, and there was kind of a hedging. There were, there, there was those because they'd already, as it as it developed, you could see that there was going to go. You were going to go back and forth. So there were people who tried to save things. They yeah. hid them. They buried them. They kept them. They re- tried to reuse them in some ways. You know, it took a while for uh, even uh, even into Elizabeth the first reign before some things were, you know drawings on on walls the last judgments and those kind of things in churches were covered up so it took some time for this all to take place but nevertheless it started affecting them and and they must have seen it and but then again it would switch back henry the eighth one time uh after 1538 even he crept to the cross on good friday wow. even he took palms on palm sunday so it created these confusions in people's mind. But it, what I think it really started to do, Al, was it started to, to tear at the social fabric and the cultural fabric. I mean, these were the things that made people's lives kind of integrated into their faith and their, you know, their work life, their yeah. family life. And the way they, they lived together. They integrated in yeah. this way, and it tore that apart. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's again, you mentioned uh, Eamon Duffy's work, which I think is really great. It, it demonstrates, I mean, for a lot of us who uh, are really concerned about the doctrinal dimension of things, we sometimes forget that um, popular piety is what often holds people together, uh, not only in the church, but also 
in the community, the civic community of which they're a part. And as as uh, Henry VIII and uh, others began to eliminate those aspects of popular piety that held people together, I would imagine that also began creating a very divided country. Uh, is is that what happened? Yeah, I yes, I think so. I mean, one one of the things the the big division was that that I think the whole view of the communion of saints was destroyed. Yes, by what Henry VIII set in motion, and you know the the idea of the of the church militant, the church uh, suffering, and the the church uh, you know in glory and and victorious. That kind of went away because uh, e- even though. He probably still continued to pray to saints, and he wanted prayers for the dead. That that was kind of, uh, in some ways, degraded and and suppressed and mocked, and therefore, and, you know, and this is one of the things I think Thomas More saw so clearly in, in all his defense of, of Catholic doctrine, uh, even when he was Chancellor uh, of England, and then once he had retired, he saw that this there was a, a real attack on these social bonds, and that's what he often argues in his. Well, his dialogue concerning heresies, he talks about this will destroy the common good yeah. if you allow this kind of reformation and this change of, in, in religious practice. It will affect religious doctrine, and it will affect the social good, right. and it will wear it away. It will divide families. It will uh, divide divide us even from those who we pray to and pray for, who have gone before us? So yeah. it, I think it did start leading to that. Yeah, and it, yeah. I think it leads to divisions, and it le- led to divisions in families. Definitely, it led to div- divisions in. I mean, England was already an island, but they became more insular because they lost many of those influences uh, from the continent, from, the continent, from, yeah. from Catholicism, yep. and well, from the church. You often hear people use the phrase "the Elizabethan settlement," um, but. What was actually settled at that time? Because conflict went on afterwards. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, and even, uh, I mean, the, the both Henry, you, you could say that both Henry VIII and Elizabeth I tried to kind of have that via media that then, you know, later, St. John Henry Newman, as he was an Anglican, would try to rediscover right. where you weren't, weren't going all the way to Zurich, but you weren't going... All the way to Rome, either, <laughs> right. and neither one of them worked, and neither one of them could hold. And you know, in a way, when you get to Edward the Sixth, it's almost—I uh, mean, that, that was a comprehensive, clear-sighted reformation on a, on a Calvinist uh, form. And the Thirty-Nine Articles are, you know, have a Calvinist view of salvation and the Calvinist view of of. Uh, works and, mm-hmm. and predestination, mm-hmm. and so it becomes a, a clearer thing. But even then, when Elizabeth takes it up, then they start hedging. Right. <laughs> they start, you know, trying to say it's this and this and, and a little bit of that. Maybe not that, though. And so I think they have that difficulty. And and so then Elizabeth has, immediately starts having the conflict between those who um, – want more reforms that become known as the Puritans, who right. want to purify the church even more, right. get rid of more things that, that seem to be papist or leaning to Catholic things. So, yeah. yes, it creates a confusion that, that has lasted, and I think it's lasted to today, sure. in the, with what you see in the Church of England today with uh, slipper slides in Anglican cathedrals and formerly Catholic cathedrals and things like that, that, that 
those bonds of sacredness really been broken? What is the legal... Now, you could say what they gained was the Bible. I mean, the Bible was translated, but even yeah. that Henry got nervous about because he didn't really like the idea of individuals interpreting the Bible. <laughs> if, if it's going to be interpreted, he should be doing it. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, what was the legal status of Catholics? Uh, uh, did it change uh, with Elizabeth or after Elizabeth, James the Sixth, or what? Was under it, Henry? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I don't think it really changed under Henry, except that you had to be a Catholic according to, to Henry the Eighth's terms. Okay. But otherwise, no. You you know the the, the uh, uh, as I said, you know he supported the the true idea of the Mass. He allowed English uh, for a time, and he also allowed the laity to receive the cup, but then he took that away for a while, too. So, But he, he was still staunchly uh, faithful to that and expected uh, faithfulness to believing in the, the real presence and the sacrifice of the Mass. Mm-hmm. So that didn't change uh, until uh, Edward VI and, and then, of course, under Elizabeth I. Then then it changed, and then it changed radically after 1570 with uh, Pope Pius V's uh, excommunication of, of Elizabeth, and also not just excommunicating, but because Henry had been excommunicated, but also saying that Catholics should not be faithful to her as their monarch. Okay. Then things changed radically. Right. That's what that's what I was wondering. So it's 1570 right. yeah. that that happens. Yeah, that's when things changed. Right. Catholics, you could not you could not be a then you had to then you had to attend Church of England services. You had to uh, if you were in certain positions, you had to swear an oath to England to uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, and otherwise you were known as recusants and would be fined. Of course, Henry had the same kind of oath, and then, and if you'd, you there was no chance for fining, you would just be separated from your head. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, it's like, it's like more and you know, it, right, right. Uh, you always wonder if Henry the Eighth had um, been able to see uh, down the road a century or so, uh, if he would have gone the way he did. Yeah. Of course, we don't know, but uh, yeah. he didn't anticipate that kind of conflict, did he? No, he didn't. Although. You know, there's there's a, a famous his last Parliament when he spoke to Parliament in on December the Chris, on Christmas Eve in 1534 1545 excuse me 1545 he dies in 1547 where he's saying I don't like all this conflict why are we having so much cons- you know fighting about religious matters yeah. and that kind of indicates to me that he didn't he didn't he did not see what he had put in place even then. Yeah. That he had uh, uh, instigated so much of these divisions within his own church by changing sides, by playing one side against the other, and yeah. things like that. So I, sometimes I wonder. I, I think he would have still thought that he was doing what he needed to do to maintain his dy- dynastic power and maintain his own power. Yeah. Yeah. I really do. I just don't think he... If he couldn't see it in 1545, I don't know, because then he was seeing signs of it. Yeah, yeah. There was, it wasn't as though he had harmony, right? Right. No, the yeah. things ain't going well. One last quick question here. Um, sure. Did, who, did they try to maintain apostolic succession, and at what point, and even today, is apostolic succession a significant interest of Anglicans? 
I think that Henry, during the reign of Henry VIII, yes, they were attempting to maintain an idea of, of ordination. Although, again, remember, they don't really have a sacrament anymore. Yeah. Uh, or they've, they've got away from it. Uh, the ordination is no longer a sacrament because it's just baptism, Eucharist, and penance. But they still wanted to uh, have some continuity in some ways. But that is a good question. I think that's one of the reasons that when Pope Leo XIII looked at the issue of Anglican orders, uh, yeah. of the apostolic succession and Anglican orders, that he declared they were null and void. Right. Because the idea of what they, what, what they were receiving in an anointing and a, and a commissioning to be a, a priest or a bishop had changed. Right, right. Stephanie, wonderful. Thanks so much for being with me Thank again. Thank you. Yeah, we'll talk again. This is great. Stephanie Mann, the book is called Supremacy and Survival, How Catholics Endured the English Reformation. Actually, this is the book that I always recommend on this topic. Every woman deserves specialized health care. At Arbor Women Health, our team of compassionate professionals listen to our patients and want to understand what they're going through. They serve everyone from teen girls to seniors. Our faith-based clinicians specialize in obstetrics, gynecology, fertility awareness and crisis, or unexpected pregnancies. Call 734-930-4020 or visit arborwomenhealth.org. Arbor Woman, faith-inspired, dignity-affirming healthcare. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. Are you experiencing spiritual desolation? Are you considering changing a spiritual decision that you made before the experience of spiritual desolation began? St. Ignatius of Loyola gives guidance in the fifth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits. St. Ignatius is clear, in time of desolation, never make a change, but be firm and constant. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The tactic of the enemy in the darkness of spiritual desolation is to suggest that we reverse the decisions made in preceding times of light. Into this trap, says Ignatius, we must never fall. Rather, we must remain firm and constant in such proposals through the time of spiritual desolation. Spiritual desolation is a time that calls us to constancy and fidelity. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Thanks for joining us over that hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on those conversations that we had. Stephanie Mann's book will be available for you in the online store. And also you can check out Al's commentary on why we say our battle is against the powers that be. More to come in the next hour, discussing the power of hope and this maybe the gift of this amazing virtue. This is an uh, interview we've aired before, but we always try to share it you know, once a year or so, just because it's so uh, spiritually edifying. And you look back at all the things that the world's been through over the last, not just the last three years, but 
any time in our lives, there's always been difficult times in the world. And people will point out, why do you still have hope with all of these war and disease and death and awfulness that happens in, that you see in the news? Well, because, you know, St. Peter tells us, always be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is within you. And that is what we're doing in the next hour with Father Philip Bachansky. Hope is one of God's greatest gifts to us. It's an essential and life-giving topic. And by meditating on Scripture and the teachings of the Church, we can come to a deeper understanding of how hope is necessary in the life of a disciple. Father Philip Bachansky, author of The Virtue of Hope, How Confidence in God Can Lead You to Heaven, joins us with more in the next hour of Crest in the Afternoon. Don't go away. Studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome back for another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. Wishing you all a happy Thursday on this uh, blustery January day. And as you can tell, this is not Al. This is Bryant again. Al's uh, continuing to get over this uh, chest cold he's been dealing with. I spoke with him today. He's doing fine. Just want to reassure you of that. But his uh, voice is not up for doing radio today. Uh, Lord willing, he'll be back either tomorrow or Monday with more. And uh, before we go to the today's topic, I wanted to once again give a uh, congratulations to another longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Spirit Catholic Radio in Omaha, celebrating 25 years with us. They are on 15 stations across Nebraska and another one in Boyd, Wisconsin. So uh, congratulations to Jim Carroll and everybody else at Spirit Catholic Radio from your friends at EWTN. Uh, there's also a really nice piece published by Renewal Ministries that maybe we'll get to talk about in the next few days on the radical nature of our Catholic faith. Uh, we toss around the phrase missionary disciples. What happens when a new favorite phrase comes into the church's vocabulary? It's common for priests to say that we're all missionary disciples, but we're not. You have to realize how radical it is to be a disciple of Jesus. We shouldn't sell lay people short. The baptized are called to participate fully in Jesus' mission. Most people think being Catholic means saying your prayers at night and going to church. That's good, but that's just not discipleship. There's a lot more to it than that. And uh, Ralph Martin, author of that piece that we'll have posted for you in the Cresta Guest Archives. And again, we maybe have Ralph or Peter Herbeck on in the next few days. But that's not today's topic. Today's topic is hope and the power of one of God's greatest gifts to us. I continue to think back. I've mentioned this before when I've uh, been on the air. A piece written, I think it was in The Guardian, about a year into COVID. This guy who was not a religious person saying that COVID showed him that there was some value to religion because people of faith were able to keep their hope up and able to uh, have some some positivity in some very dark times. They still had a light in their lives. Um, this is a conversation we had with Father Philip Bachansky well before COVID was any part of the conversation. And it's just a universal point that in dark times, the light of Jesus gives us hope. And so we will explore the power of one of God's greatest gifts to us, Philip Bachansky, the author of The Virtue of Hope, How Confidence in God Can Lead You to Heaven, joins us after this news break. Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. 
This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, January 11th. It's the Feast of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The Biden administration says allegations that Israel has committed genocide in Gaza are unfounded. Those who are violently attacking Israel, who continue to openly call for Israel's annihilation and the mass uh, murder of Jews. State Department spokesman Vidat Patel said such allegations should be made with the greatest of care. This comes as South Africa is presenting its case to the International Court of Justice, accusing Israel of genocide in its war against Hamas. Israel will address the court Friday. Former President Trump continues to call his New York civil fraud trial a witch hunt. The judge in the case allowed Trump to speak for five minutes during closing arguments today, despite originally indicating he would not be allowed to make a statement. Trump, his adult sons, and business associates are accused of inflating the value of real estate in order to get more favorable loans. St. Peter's Basilica will undergo a major restoration. The Vatican announced today that the Baldacchino over the main altar, which was designed more than 400 years ago, will be renovated. The large canopy marks the burial place of St. Peter. The project is funded by the Knights of Columbus and will take about a year, finishing in time for next year's Jubilee. And Congress is facing another looming government shutdown deadline. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today said he's aiming to pass a short-term funding extension next week. Schumer and House Speaker Mike Johnson recently agreed on top-line spending numbers, which a group of House conservatives have spoken out against due to lack of cuts. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, uh, Father Philip Bochansky, is an extraordinary teacher. He's a Catholic priest and a member of the Philadelphia Congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri. Received his uh, Master's in Theology from Charles Borromeo Seminary. But he's published several books, uh, articles on spirituality and history. Uh, at one time, he served as peer reviewer for the Lenaker Quarterly and the Journal of the Catholic Medical Association. He is, has delivered at least three uh, series for Now You Know Media, uh, dealing with Catholic themes, including one dealing with the life and times of John Henry Newman, life and legacy of John Henry Newman. He's also done one on the um, heroes of the desert. And today we want to look at a series he did called The Power of Hope. Father, great to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you, Al. It's good to be with you. In the series, uh, Power of Hope, you lead off very basically by defining virtue. So why don't we begin there? What is virtue? Well, uh, virtue um, is a, uh, certainly a theological concept, but it's, a, it's also something that appears in uh, the uh, in ancient philosophies. Uh, for example, Aristotle uh, and and uh, those ancient Greek philosophers uh, often use the term uh, arete, uh, 
uh, which is not for them something necessarily moral or ethical, but it's uh, it, it, more generically it, it, it connotes kind of living up to to potential, being fulfilled. So um, you know, so that uh, for example, uh, you know, an athlete who's you know at the top of his uh, of his game, he's got a rete in his mm-hmm. sport. He he's developed that that talent or that ability over time. Um, you know, and uh, some of it comes from from natural gifts, but a lot of it has to do with uh, with um, you know applying oneself to developing those gifts, to using them consistently and in a consistent direction. Um, so, kind of most basically, uh, a virtue is is um, is is something that's practiced and developed, uh, and that's that's come to its fulfillment. So then, when we apply that to to, to moral or ethical virtues. Um, it means, you know, taking those those uh, supernatural gifts that that we we've received, or or uh, uh, you know, the just kind of common uh, ethical um, um, you know approaches to um, uh, to to good living, and and really applying them, uh, developing them in in a, in a particular way. Uh, Aristotle would say that that for for, for uh, ethical virtue, we're we're talking about uh, getting at the 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 mean that's between the the two extremes, uh, always aiming in the right direction for uh, for that that way of right living that avoids uh, extremes of excess or of defect. So, for example, um, a person can be uh, can be stingy on the one hand or extravagant and prodigal with their with their money on the other. Uh, but when when you're practicing the virtue of generosity you're hitting the 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 happy medium so to speak Mm, um and and virtue involves kind of constantly aiming for that that uh, that mean between the extremes so repetitive Um, it's got to be repetitive right Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thomas Aquinas would describe would describe virtue as, as a habitual action, as, as and and we we talk about developing good habits, um, which is not just uh, repetition, but but by repeating those good actions, um, it, it it changes our our way of looking at ourselves, our way of looking at the world. It becomes the more that we're practicing virtues, the easier it becomes to to continue. Now, uh, with the, the a theological virtue like hope. That's infused. That has to be still uh, cultivated, right? Right. So the the church identifies faith, hope, and love as as theological virtues in the sense that you know they lead us to God, uh, and in the sense that they they come to us from God. He, mm-hmm. he gives us these kind of basic abilities because without them, uh, we wouldn't be able to know Him or to love Him or be in relationship with Him or, or follow Him. So so um, the th- faith, hope, and love. Uh, there's, they're infused in us as, as gifts from God along with sanctifying grace at our baptism. And, but, but, um, to say that we, so, so we, there's a lot of consolation in saying that we have them by nature, um, by, by, by supernature, I guess you could say, by that mm-hmm. gift from God. But yeah, we, we have to take that natural, that, we have to take that supernatural gift and, and develop it and use it. Um, otherwise it doesn't help us very much. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when we identify, you know, a prodigy of one sort or another, you know, you say that such a person has has natural gifts and abilities, but you can have, uh, you know, uh, you can have a gift for playing the piano, but if you never sit down and practice, you're not going to make much music. Right? <laughs> so, absolutely um, you know, true. We we have these these supernatural virtues in us as as part of the gift of sanctifying grace, but we do have to make acts of virtue and and. Uh, 
and develop and practice them. And, and uh, the more that we do, the, the more fully we can we can use the gifts that, that God has given to us. I just pulled up a, a, a website, a news website, and I'm looking here. Um, there's a movie star who's defending the um, the uh, m- movement uh, that has uh, come up, you know, striking back against the uh, uh, male uh, aggression. There's a dash cam video about a, a drunk driver evading cops. There's a Florida school district condemning racism because uh, there have been some big incidents there. Uh, well, here's a funny one. There's an angry goose attacking a high school golfer. That's kind of a... <laughs> um, woman showing hair under headscarf assaulted by morality police. Waffle House shooting. Suspect's father could face federal charges. Can secret JFK file shed light on a 1971 suicide? That's the kind of world in which we're, we're called to, uh, to develop the virtue of hope. Mm-hmm. Um it's almost as though developing hope uh, is a survival mechanism <laughs> in this environment. Well, I, I think I think that that's that's very true, really. I mean, how could you live in a world uh, with any kind of sanity, let alone perseverance, uh, if if what you had to say every morning is this is all there is right this craziness this selfishness this evil this this these these kind of messed up priorities that we see you know but the virtue of hope uh is is premised uh, on the you know our understanding of it it begins with the, with the idea that 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 what god is calling us to do and the kind of life that god is calling us to live uh goes beyond our supernatural abilities so that first of all uh or goes beyond our natural abilities yes, yes. so the first of all we we look around the, at the world and we say this is impossible and and you know god's really kind of saying to us well yeah you're you're right you know by yourself living in a broken world like this that is impossible um jesus says as much as the la- at the last supper you know without me you can do nothing mm-hmm. um and so so hope means uh, that ability to believe and to trust that if god is asking us to live in a crazy world and to to do things that most of the world is not going to encourage us or much less help us to do that what he's asking us to do is 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 beyond our natural abilities. Well, unless he is unaware of that, that reality and God knows everything, or he's just setting us up to fail and that's not the God we believe in, well, then then he must have a way for us to be able to do this. Um, he must have already uh, chosen to, to help us to do uh, what we can't do on our own. And and hope is hope gives us that perspective that says, um, yeah, I... I I can I can do what I'm able to do by my natural abilities, and then God's going to give me His grace and His supernatural help to allow me to hear His voice and understand His will and embrace it and live it out, even when the world around me seems to be uh, going in the opposite direction. So the you quote uh, at one point in the series that you did, you quote Thomas Aquinas: "The object of a hope conceived broadly." is a future good that is demanding but possible. So mm-hmm. the demand, uh, demand, we respond to the, that demand uh, with all that we've got, knowing that all that we've got isn't in and of itself capable, but knowing that God's 
grace will enable us, will make it possible. Right. As, as I, so many that right? Have, have taught us, it's, it's at the point where, where we recognize the limits of our own abilities yes. that hope kicks in yeah. and allows us to rely on God and, and his abilities. That's interesting. And that, yeah. that's as old as St. As Paul, right? You know, He says, I rejoice in my weakness yeah. because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I stop depending on myself, in other words, then I can depend on God and it's his strength that, that gets me through. Hmm. Um, God's friendship is something that I, I actually don't hear talked about very often. What does it mean to be a friend of God? You know, I think it, it starts with the reality that, that God creates us for relationship, right? That, that um, you know, by being in the image and likeness of God, it means that, that we're made uh, for, to, to understand and, and know ourselves, but also to communicate uh, ourselves to others. So uh, he, he makes us with that capacity, and then he tells us how he wants us to use that capacity. Uh, he, we're not just made in his image, but according to his likeness. So he, yeah. he wants us to use that ability to be in relationship to make a gift of ourselves to others. Um, and so... Uh, so that's that is extraordinarily beautiful in itself when we, we realize that God has made us to be able uh, to be in relationship with one another. But then we we hear that call that that Jesus extends to us throughout His ministry, but especially at the Last Supper when when He says, "I call you my friends um, because I've made known to you what I've heard from my Father, and you can be my friends when if you keep my commandments." So uh, He doesn't just want us to be in relationship with other human beings, but he desires that we be in relationship with, with himself and, mm. and he makes himself available to us. Um, and so, you know, because he, uh, because he creates us, uh, for himself, as St. Augustine says, um, you know, we find our fulfillment in that, in that relationship, in that friendship with God. Um, but because it's not a relationship of equals, right? right. God is our creator and we are his creatures. Um, the the invitation to friendship with God also implies that that He is taking the initiative necessarily. So He reaches out to us and gives us faith, hope, and love, so that it's possible for us to be in relationship with Him. Which, if you think about it, makes it even more extraordinary because it means that God wants friendship with us even more than we want friendship with Him, um, and so He He does everything, including sacrificing his own life on the cross to make that friendship possible. My guest is Father Philip Ochansky. The power of hope. Uh, Hope to live a daring life. Uh, Hope enables us to change. We're going to talk about conversion in the next segment. We're also going to talk about some of the great figures through our history who have taught us about hope. Back by popular demand is our trip through Portugal, Spain, and France. We start with a day in Fatima, following all the steps of the Little Shepherds. Santiago de Compostela, the ending point for the El Camino, is the home of the largest incenser. Visit the tomb of St. James the Apostle. Three days in Lourdes, which is quite indescribable. You'll have to come and see it to believe it. To learn more about your Ave Maria Radio trip, find the Ave Maria Radio travel tab at AveMariaRadio.net. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, 
they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. First rule of thumb when I've been asked to speak or when I've been asked to write a talk for a client is to know the audience. Who am I speaking to? What stories should I share? I tailor talks to the specific audiences. Speaking to a woman's group or a mom's group will be much different than a youth group. This is part of meeting people where they're at on their faith journey. And this is something to keep in mind whether you're evangelizing the faith to one person or to hundreds of people. As Christians, we're all called to proclaim the good news. We're all called to use our charisms and God-given talents to network and bring others to Christ. In the Gospels, we read how carefully and intentionally Jesus crafted his messages. In the Acts of the Apostles, Philip asks, How can I understand unless someone guides me? The next time you prepare talking points or messages to share the good news with another, think of Philip. How will you guide him? This has been a Christ Center Communication Message. I'm Vanessa Denhagarmo, a communications evangelist and host of Epiphany. Light of the East. Weekends on Ave Maria Radio. I am Father Thomas Loya. This week on Ave Maria, as though being born and laid in a manger in Bethlehem was not humbling enough, our Lord chose to lower himself in the lowest spot on the earth's surface, the River Jordan. There he would be baptized for our sake and God as Trinity would be revealed. Now on Ave Maria Radio's newest FM stations, 105.5 FM in Southfield and 107.9 FM in Ann Arbor. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Philip Pochansky, uh, taking us on a tour of the theological virtue of hope and its power to uh, enable us to live the life that God created us to live and redeemed us uh, to live. We've been talking about friendship with God, and uh, I, I think all of us know that we uh, are not... Um, finished with change, that we need ongoing conversion. What is the relationship between hope, 
the theological virtue of hope, and preparing for conversion? Well, I think fundamentally hope reminds us that that we're still on the way, that we haven't yet reached the goal mm-hmm. uh, to, to which we're called. Um, you know, so um, hope is really the virtue of, of the road, of the, in Spanish they call it the camino, the, the way of, of our life. And, and, and so that means, uh, you know, I, I mentioned before, you know, every virtue is kind of between two extremes. And, and uh, hope is between the, the, the sinful extremes of, of presumption and despair. So if we're still on the way, if we keep that in mind that life is, is a journey, um, then it reminds us there's still work to be done. So that we don't grow presumptuous, you know, and figure, well, we've got it all figured out. Right. right. But it also it tells us also that there's still there's still room and, and time for improvement. So we we mustn't despair either. Um, you know, we don't. Uh, again, we don't we don't uh, uh, presume that we've got an indefinite amount of time. And Jesus promises us forgiveness, but he doesn't promise us tomorrow. Um, but because uh, because we're still on the way. Uh, it, it, it really calls us, but also I think hopefully inspires and and encourages us to uh, to keep making progress day by day, always always moving forward, which means always moving closer to God and and to the people He's called us to be. Uh, in 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 your study of hope, who is the who is the figure that you might say is the great theologian of hope? I mean, is is it St. Augustine? Is it Thomas Aquinas? Is it, uh, you know, the, the lesser-known figures uh, like Carol Hauslander? Uh, who who do you think really gives us the uh, the most comprehensive understanding of hope? Well, you know, I I, I think St. Thomas is, uh, you know, is really beneficial uh, you know, because he's so systematic and, and yeah. kind of lays okay. out, you know, the different parts of, of hope, the different, you know, even before that, the different, uh, parts of, of what, a, what a virtue is about. How do you pursue a virtue? You know, what is, what does it look like when, when you're doing it right? Um, so I, I guess in terms of, um, like the objective, you know, being able to lay it out systematically, uh, St. Augustine, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas yeah. is really good at that. Okay. But then, I mean, St. Augustine, um, you know, is, is an extraordinary theologian anyway, but I mean, here, here's a man who, who lived the virtue of hope, yeah. uh, yeah. through twists and turns and ups and downs. So, I mean, in terms of being able to speak about hope kind of from the inside, uh, I think uh, we learn a lot from, from the story of St. Augustine to be sure. You, you mentioned him as a model of helping us break free from sin. Is that because of his own autobiography? Yeah, and and, and because he in in that autobiography, which of course is, is referred to as the Confessions of Saint Augustine, mm-hmm. he's just so he's so um, intimate and detailed about what was going on in his interior life um, throughout his whole life. You know, he, he's uh, he's very honest that, that you know the the. Uh, the, the twists and turns, the trouble he got himself into was was really be, because looking back, he realized he, he was always looking for friendship. He's always looking for connection, just looking for it in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But but I think especially when he describes you know that that famous moment of of being in in the garden at his friend's house and and uh, and really feeling uh, called to make this this definitive choice for God. Um, he describes it at, at one point. He says. 
it was the shortest journey that I would ever have to take, just a single step. But it was, it felt so long that I realized I couldn't do it on my own. And, wow. and he, he tells us, he tells us, you know, in very beautiful terms, uh, what that kind of back and forth was like uh, in his mind between his old way of life and, and what he was being invited to. And at the end of it, uh, it's, it's marvelous. He says, he, he just, he turns to the Lord and says, I cannot do this on my own. I need you to do this for me, yeah. uh, to paraphrase St. Augustine, who says it much more beautifully than I do. Um, <laughs> but then that's, that's when that, then that's when God steps in, having in a sense being given permission by Augustine to, to, to just do it for him. He steps in and, and directs him through that, that beautiful, uh, you know, children's song that he heard over yes. the wall yeah. to, to, to open up the scripture and, and to, to receive that consoling message from the Lord that right now is the time to convert you. If you do this, I will help you. I'll, I'll help. I'll give you the strength to do it. I love that story because you think here you have Augustine, this, this fantastic, brilliant teacher of rhetoric. I mean, in the, the late antique world, he's regarded as one of the most prolific. Uh, he became one of the most prolific uh, and most respected stylists. And yet his, his conversion rests not on him figuring out some kind of complex equation or syllogism uh, or even a profound mystic vision, but just the, the sing-songy chant of a child giving him direction. There's something about that that is just so unexpected. Well, I, yes, but we ought to expect it because we have it from the from the words of of the Lord Himself, right? Unless you become like yeah. a little child, yeah. you yeah. cannot enter the kingdom of God. You yeah. know, and for Augustine, I think that that really took took the form of, of Augustine. Please stop fighting, stop <laughs> trying to do this on your own, stop trying to figure it all out. Just let me help you. Um, you know, and uh, you mentioned Carol Hauslander uh, yeah. a minute ago, uh, who's really an extraordinary uh, <laughs> author. And, and, you know, she says in one place when she's talking about spiritual childhood, she said, you know, we most of us don't become like little children because we haven't grown up yet. Um, you have to you have to mature to, you know, pass that kind of spiritual teenagerhood that needs to have everything under control and do it all ourselves. You have to mature in order to be a little child. Yeah, you know, she's been on my mind not only because she's uh, has you have a, a great uh, talk about her in the lecture series, but I got back from England, where my wife and daughter located her grave, which which is a bit of a mini uh, crusade for us or a little like a pilgrimage for us to find Carol Auslander's grave. Wow. Um, but she is she's a, a great writer uh, th- that I think m- many people don't really know much about her. You use her as an example of um, uh, the courage to be afraid. And I thought that was an amazing uh, t- summary of her life. Tell us about that, because w- the courage to be afraid, th- for many people, that's almost contradictory. Courage would mm-hmm. seem to be a denial of fear, right? Right, indeed. But, uh, you know, the, one of the things that makes her so practical about all this is that she was in a situation where she couldn't possibly deny it anymore. You know, yeah. she, uh, Carol, for, for your listeners, she, Carol House Sunder was born in 1901 uh, in England, and, and she was living in London uh, at uh, during World War II. 
um, and uh, she, she like everybody else in London, uh, endured um, about uh, eight or nine months of, of bombing, the, the Blitz, it was called, um, many, many consecutive nights of, of aerial bombing. And um, years later, when, when people would, would write to her and ask about how, overcoming anxiety, she, she would, and several times she, she related that story, she said, I was there. And I always seemed to be caught in the wrong place when the bombs started falling. I was outside or on up on the roof or or, or not in the bomb shelter where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was kind of a, a a nervous person, you know, by nature. But she said, you know, I, I would I would be terrified of the, of this experience, and and I try and fight it, and I'd, I'd make myself as brave as I could, and it just wasn't working. She said, and then one day it dawned on me. There are bombs falling. I'm supposed to be afraid of this situation. <laughs> and she said, you know, once she realized that and just said, okay, for however long this bombing raid lasts, I'm going to be afraid. And it's not pleasant, but I'm going to offer it up for somebody who needs that. She said, once she did that, as long as she stopped fighting the fear, and, and more importantly, once she stopped resenting the fear, mm-hmm. then that whole exhausting burden of trying to do it by herself just got lifted. And because she wasn't so focused on herself, all of a sudden she found she was able to to perceive God's presence and God's prote- protection. You know, When she, she took her eyes off her own fear, she became aware of the closeness of God, and and that then she felt safe. Still afraid, but but certainly protected. Yeah, and I, it is amazing that she the fear doesn't entirely disappear, um, but she she stops resenting it. She stops trying right. to evade it, and um, exactly. and I, I and offering it up for others. I I thought again. I think what happens when people think about offering up. Uh, some aspect of suffering for others that there's some implicit expectation that that means that uh, somehow it's going to the suffering, the immediate suffering is going to uh, disappear almost magically when in fact Mm -hmm. with her the anxiety continues and that's where we see the connection between suffering and the cross yeah um, you know that that the Lord went took our sins to the cross. He, he he endured the cross for our sake, but he he really endured it. You know he he went. He didn't just kind of go tiptoe up to the cross and then wait to get rescued. Um, he went through it, and and it's uh, I think it's it's suffering is going to come for all of us because we live in a world that's broken by sin. Um, whether suffering does us any good depends on on how we face it, and and if we embrace it. Uh, along with the Lord, then then uh, then suffering can can actually be beneficial to us in the sense that it teaches us virtues like humility and perseverance and patience. Uh, but also through the mystery of the cross, it can be it can be beneficial to others because we we share their burdens as part of the body of Christ. I think you quote uh, Benedict the Sixteenth in Space Salvi: "Suffering is a setting for learning hope." Indeed, yeah. indeed, and and not just learning how to. Uh, bear our own suffering, but but also um, how to be with others uh, when they are suffering. You know, in that that letter you mentioned, Space Salvi, uh, he looks at the word uh, consolation. You know, and and at the heart of consolation is 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 the Latin word solus, which means alone. Mm-hmm. But then that prefix c o n means together. So with you. you know, we 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 console we can console someone in the midst of suffering simply by being with them when they are alone, so that they're not alone anymore. 
I, I think we suffering, especially sickness and, and, and someone else, especially innocent people, um, like suffering of little children, it, it really rattles and shakes us um, because we're so powerless yes. to understand it, much less do anything about it. But um, but consolation and, and, and hope in God's providence and in God's presence uh, means that just, we know that just by being with someone, we're actually uh, able to help and, and console them. Yes. Father, are you uh, free to spend another segment with me? Oh, I'd be delighted. Beautiful. My guest, Father Philip Ochansky, looking at the power of hope. It's a series, by the way, if you want to get the entire lecture series, it's uh, part of the Now You Know uh, Media uh, series, but also I notice Audible.com also has it available. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. The men of the Sacred Hearts want to send you a 8x10 image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and Immaculate Heart of Mary, along with a self-guided consecration to the Sacred Heart of Jesus ceremony book. Request this mailed kit by going to our new secure website, firstjesus.org, and scroll down to the self-led home consecration. Click on the Learn More and request the kit. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. This week on Christ is the Answer, Father John wants to tell us who Jesus really is. In the Synoptic Gospels, there's a famous story about Jesus and his disciples going into the district of Caesarea Philippi. After inquiring about what the people were saying about him, Jesus then turns to his followers and asks, But who do you say that I am? Join us this week as Father John helps us look introspectively into our hearts as our Lord still asks the same question to each of us today. Tune in for Christ is the Answer Monday through Fridays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In the fifth rule of St. Ignatius of Loyola's 14 Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, St. Ignatius teaches that when we are experiencing spiritual consolation, the Good Spirit guides and counsels us more. When we are experiencing spiritual desolation, it is the Bad Spirit that guides and counsels us more. And as St. Ignatius teaches, we cannot find the way to the right decision. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The time of spiritual consolation is thus the time to accept the work of God, to be open, to listen, to receive the thoughts and inspirations arising from the consolation itself. Father Gallagher continues, The thoughts that arise out of spiritual desolation, the guidance and counsel of the bad spirit we then receive, if followed, will always lead to spiritual diminishment. How has the good spirit been guiding your heart today? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. 
Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Resetting your password, unsubscribing from emails, printing anything. Why are simple things sometimes so complicated? Thankfully, with an auto owner's insurance independent agent, getting the right coverage for your business doesn't have to be one of them. So you can get back to more important things, like learning how that printer works. That's simple human sense. Call Choice Insurance Agency at 734-641-4200. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Philip Pochansky. Um, we're looking over a teaching he did on the power of hope. And uh, hope enables us to live a daring life. Uh, uh, because of hope, we can dare to change. With hope, we dare to serve the world. Because of hope, we dare to struggle. We dare to suffer. We dare to pray. And the series is uh, has, an, oh, I think, 18 different lectures and they're all studded with references and um, vignettes and profiles of some remarkable uh, people in our uh, Catholic history. We, St. Augustine, I mentioned Carol Hauslander. We talked about her. Uh, t- tell us about persevering in holiness, uh, and you use Venerable Matt Talbot for that example. Right. Uh, Matt Talbot... Um uh, a young man uh, growing up in Ireland in, in the 19th century, um, he uh, he became addicted to alcohol as as a young man. Um, he was working uh, for tax collectors, actually um, duty collectors uh, on the uh, the docks there in Dublin, and they would send him around to uh, to wine merchants and uh, and. Uh, uh, people who who imported and and sold alcohol and uh, to collect the, the the duty to collect the tax and mm-hmm. um, you know although he was only 12 years old uh, when he'd come to to bring a message or to to collect the money uh, the uh, the wine merchants would often give him a little nip of something wow. to you know pass the time while they were getting their their money together um, and uh, like I said at, at that that young age. Um, he would uh, he developed uh, an addiction to alcohol which lasted uh, about 16 years uh, oh. well into his late 20s um, he he was what we would call today a, a high functioning alcoholic he mm-hmm. he was a model worker um, at, at, you know as a bricklayer um, you know and then he uh, uh, after work, he was the life of the party, and he'd fly <laughs> rounds for other people, uh, which meant that you know he'd get paid on Saturday, and and his wages are usually gone by Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was he was um, he was loving life, you know, uh, and uh, uh, until one one Saturday afternoon in, in 1884, 
uh, which, which changed his life. Um, he hadn't worked at all that week, so he was broke. Um, but he knew, he knew the route that his friends would take after work and, and he waited outside the pub for his coworkers to come along. He figured, look, I bought enough rounds for everybody else. Uh, they're going to buy me a drink or two. Uh, and what happened was the, all of his coworkers and, and supposed friends walked right past him like he wasn't even there. Oh. Um, and uh, he said that experience just cut him to the heart. And, uh, you know, I, I think if uh, we think about somebody in that situation, you know, he was he was at kind of the, the crossroads of, of his life and, and it could have gone could have gone either way. I think, I think, uh, we, I mentioned, you know, one of the, the sinful extremes that that's opposed to, to hope is despair. And it would have been so easy, I think, for him to, uh, to just plummet into despair at that point and, and, and take all that rejection to heart. And, uh, instead, uh, he went, we went home, uh, had, uh, had the midday meal with his family. Uh, by all accounts, his mother was very surprised to see him home on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, and then he shocked her even more when he told her he was going to church. Um, he went huh. to confession and, uh, because of the advice of, of the priest who heard his confession, uh, he took the pledge, as they said in those days, to abstain from alcohol. Uh, so he took the pledge for three months and he wasn't sure he'd be able to keep it, but he prayed for the strength to do it. Then after that, he renewed it for a year and then he renewed it a third time, this time for life. Um, but he knew uh, something had to change in his routine or this 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 decision that he had made uh, wasn't going to stick. And so um, he, he figured, well, the first thing I need to do is make sure uh, I'm not running in with that crowd anymore. And so uh, he'd go to daily mass before work. Uh, he'd spend some time there in church on, uh, and the church he chose was on the other side of town from where he worked so mm-hmm. that uh, none of his friends would kind of bump into him on his way to and from. Uh, and then he would spend the hours after work in, in, in quiet prayer in, in that church. Uh, he, he is, it's beautiful how he, how he describes that. He, he talked about it as a process of, of making new friends to replace the old ones. And he was talking, of course, about, about our Lord and our lady and, and the saints, you know, and, he just would, he, he really he developed this, this real simple, uh, trusting, hopeful relationship with the Lord. Uh, they say somebody one time noticed that he, he just sat for hours in front of the tabernacle or sometimes in front of the monstrance if the Blessed Sacrament was exposed. And uh, somebody asked him one day, well, what do you do in there all day? <laughs> and, and he smiled and in his simple, humble way, he said, I look at him. And he looks at me, <laughs> right? And th- there was the key to his his holiness. He he began to see Jesus as a reality and a real presence and a real friend in his life, and and because of that, he was also able to to let the Lord into where he was struggling, and and then eventually to see himself the way that he realized that the Lord was looking at him. <clears throat> when does he become a model? Uh, I'm just curious, uh, historically, when did he become a model uh, for Catholics who were struggling with alcohol? Was it during his lifetime no, I, or later? I, I don't think so, but I, I, you know, I think um, you know, as as people that knew him uh, began to share his story. Yeah. Um, you know, it's he's still not all all that well known, um, although he's he's been declared uh, venerable. Um, you know, but I, I think uh, in a in the modern world where where we're addicted to so many things, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I think he really is, is he could really be uh, a saint for our times in, in the sense of, you know, how do we, 
uh, how do how do we supplement everything we've learned from science and medicine about addiction uh, with that that reality yeah. that that we need supernatural help and supernatural friends uh, to sustain us through those kinds of changes. You also looked at the experience of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and staying mm-hmm. hopeful when God hides. And I have to say, her story has was initially very puzzling to me. Uh, eventually, in time, I came to understand, I think, the dynamic there. Everybody uh, knew uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta as this embodiment of joyful service to the poorest of the poor, somebody who saw Christ in his most distressing uh, disguise among those who were dying. Uh, And then after her uh, passing from this world, we learned that for, well, most of her uh, active ministerial life, she had been in darkness, interior darkness, without consolation from the Lord. Uh, you may have heard of that before it came, became public. I, I learned about it with the publication of the book. Uh, oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, come be my light. Uh, tell us about that. How could that be? Well, you know, uh, Mother Teresa often spoke of her uh, her call within a call. You know, yeah. after she had been a, a teaching sister for for a long time, uh, she was just you know minding her own business, going to her retreat and. And, um, you know, in a, in a way that she really never fully explained, uh, you know, she had this encounter with the Lord um, where where she became quite sure that that he uh, he had this special vocation for her mm-hmm. uh, to, to radiate his love to souls. Um, she, you know, she described she she heard him tell her, come be my light. I cannot go alone. Um, and so, you know, she she had her retreat and 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 the weeks and months that followed to to ponder this and 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 to to really come to understand what it meant. Then many years of trying to convince her superiors uh, at different levels that this is this was something that that the Lord had had personally asked her to do. Um, but in in those days, it was it was quite an intense experience of of the Lord's presence and 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 a deep. Yeah. clarity and assurance about what he was saying and what he wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, then you know, as as she indicated in in letters to her spiritual directors, um, after that initial uh, time of of closeness, the Lord seemed to withdraw His presence from her um, in in terms of that kind of that spiritual mystical uh, connection. Yeah, um, at just the time and, she was beginning the Calcutta ministry, right? Exactly right. Yeah. You know, and and. Um, and and I think you know the way that that she seems to to look at it, and the way that it makes sense. I think you know is that that the Lord wanted her. He was really kind of testing in the sense of of, of strengthening uh, her confidence in what she had heard from him. And you know um, he didn't keep repeating it to her, but because he, I think she felt distant from him. She had to keep going back to that experience and recommitting herself. Yes. I know that he loves me. Yes, I know that this is what he wants. I know that that he said this to me, and, and I'm confident that if he if he meant it then, he means it now. Even if I can't kind of ask him to remind me or to to reassure me or to say it again, yeah. Um, you know, and and what she found in, instead, or as a result, I think is is that um, you know she she began to see him. More clearly in others and in in the fruit of her obedience to yeah. him, 
uh, and then the relationships that she that she formed as a result um maybe more she was able to see that more clearly because she she wasn't uh, she had learned not to necessarily look for it in terms of that that personal mysticism that yes. that, that personal uh one on one connection she was able to look for him in other places you know um sometimes I mean, the saints who who've been at it for a long time you know record like saint Teresa of avila saint john of the cross that the lord seems to pull back in order to increase our desire for him and in order to to help us to to look for him um, you know, for all the right reasons. But it's isn't it amazing that she stayed hopeful through, through all this? That to me is what kind of shocks me. Um, that in the in the facing such darkness over such a long period of time, it doesn't look as though she ever anticipated just throwing the whole thing aside. Um, in any serious way, I'm sure she had feelings, but. Go ahead. Yeah. And I th- I think for her, you know, um, the work that she was doing was the way that she stayed connected to him, yeah. knowing that yeah. he wanted her to do it and that he was doing it, even though they might be separated from each other. I remember reading one time, Mother Teresa told a group of, of young women who were considering joining her community, you know, to be a consecrated woman is to be married to Jesus, but sometimes he can be a difficult husband, you know, and... and <laughs> You know, I, I think, you know, she had yeah. a very realistic way of looking yeah, at him. Yeah, she's very practical. And I think, you know, I think that maybe the way she looked at it was, well, you know, we've talked about it. I know what he wants me to do, and we're going to do this together. So even though he may be doing it in a different way or in a different part uh, of, of the world or in a different part of this person's heart, I know that what I'm doing and what he's doing are connected. And so by by carrying out this work and and uh, seeing the effect that it's having on people and seeing the fruit of it, this is how I stay connected to him, even if we're not face-to-face. Father, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and for your teaching. Uh, I also love the series on Newman, which we can talk about sometime. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Al. I appreciate, appreciate the chance to, to talk about these things with you. Father Philip Bochansky, looking at the power of hope. We'll have a place... Uh, online where you were able to get uh, the series it's really remarkable would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue the ave maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way ave maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values long-term investors could invest in the no-load ave maria mutual funds You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Most parents would like to raise generous kids, but where do you start? Well, authentic generosity doesn't start with serving strangers. It starts with looking for little ways families can make each other's lives easier at home. Start a new habit in your family. Make it a rule that everyone should look for one way to leave a room better than they found it. It doesn't matter who left the coat off the hook or who left the toy on the floor. If you see it, deal with it. The important point is, good teams don't bicker about whose job something is because everybody on the team is just committed to giving their all to get the job done. Practicing generous service at home is one of the most important things Catholic families can do. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. 
Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Good afternoon, and thanks again for joining us over the last two hours of Crest in the Afternoon. Go to AveMariaRadio.net. You can follow up on all the conversations we had today. Uh, Father Bachansky's work on Hope is available for you, as well as Stephanie Mann's book on the uh, time of Reformation in England. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. And we'll be back tomorrow with more on Cresta in the Afternoon, including a conversation we do it every week with Peggy Stanton, looking ahead to the Sunday Gospel. And uh, in this Sunday Gospel, we're going to be hearing the calling of some of the first disciples when uh, Jesus asked two men, Who are you looking for? And as uh, Gail Summers writes, In St. John's beautiful telling of Jesus' encounter with his first disciples, we cannot miss one simple truth. God had already been calling these men to follow him before they decided to follow the new rabbi. They were on a mission to find the Messiah, but this was itself a response to God's call to them. His search for them, his loving knowledge of them. Jesus asked Andrew and John, what are you looking for? He knew the answer to the question before they did. Eventually, they, like us, will realize, Lord, we are all looking for you. Lord Jesus, I need to hear often the question you asked your first disciples. I am often prone to look for what I don't need, Help me to continue looking for you. A little preview of what we're doing tomorrow with Peggy. And also other topics tomorrow. We will also take a look at some other things going on in the church. And you may have heard that Pope Francis calling for a ban on surrogacy. We'll explore that as well, among other things. That's all for now. As I said, we're going off the air. Catholic Answers Live once again is ready to take your calls on all things Catholic. Keep us all in prayer. We'll be praying for you. Have a great evening, and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.